0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 324 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you. And I'm excited to be back with you. It's been a few weeks since I've posted an episode, simply because I've been traveling. have got summer stuff going on with the kids and all of that, which is taking me away from the microphone. But should be back on track with this episode. I'm excited to chat today with... Fellow Rogue coach, prior guest on the podcast, James Dodds is joining me. He was last with me on episode 300. James, how are you?
1: I'm doing good. Excited to be here. And you had the travel, but you also had a birthday in there. I don't know if you wanted the public to know that, but now I'm telling <laughs> them. Uh, happy belated birthday once again.
0: Thank you. Yes, I'm a, I'm a cancer. Mid-July birthday, July 12th officially. So I had a bit of a birthday week that was planned by my wife that was amazing but also had me busy that week, especially also just got back from the mountains with the family. It's been a nice break, but excited to be back on the mic. James and I are going to be talking today about questions or we're going to be answering questions. These are questions that have been posed to us by our virtual podcast group, all good questions, and we haven't had a chance to get to all of them on our weekly podcast for that group. So we thought we would just throw it up as a public episode because a lot of these questions are great questions that I think are relevant for anybody who's training. So we're going to get to those in just a minute. First got to quickly give a shout out to my sponsor for the episode, John G the running apparel company. They've been working with me now since the spring and I'm excited to Give you an offer code so that you can go get your own Johnji apparel. I can also report on some amazing running in the mountains with my Johnji gear. So talk about that mid-episode before we jump in on the Q and A. James, just wanted to quickly just check in with you. Last time we were talking, episode 300 that ended the year, I think, sort of started 2023. So essentially, the first episode of 2023. We were talking mostly about some of my plans for the year, but how is your 2023 going?
1: It's actually been an amazing year. Um, I'll share a little bit of like sort of what sounds like less than positive, but ultimately, um, had to get it done and it, and it feeds the overall good, um, it, I had let three years go by without running a marathon. And I knew if I kept kicking the can and didn't create some form of accountability uh with myself uh by scheduling a race date which makes me do some 20 milers which like i knew i wasn't full-on ready full-on excited full-on happy um about being committed to the daily lifestyle of training and sort of building what i would say like raising the baseline and building out the base and the foundations and fundamentals I didn't want to do it 100% properly, but busy job, flying around the country, having a lot of fun, um, and also knowing I got to put a race on the calendar. So I raced on April 30th, Oklahoma City uh, Marathon. It did not go well. It was not pretty. I am not proud of the time. I'm not even proud of the effort per se, but I looked at it, through that lens of like, dude, we got to rip the Band-Aid. Some, that's just how my pa- personality works. Um, and having done that and recovered and rested, now I'm in a mode of operation where like the baseline's coming up. Um, I'm really enjoying going to Barton Springs. I call it my summer survival strategy. Um, knowing that it's just so hot in Texas. Um, and every single year I've been in Austin 21 years, well, I've been in Texas for 39 years. I'm a native Texan born and raised here. Every single time the summer rolls around, we already know it's going to be really hot. So I just plan hundred days of hundred. So that way if if sometimes we don't hit a full 100 days of 100 degrees, sweet, bonus to me, right? I'm pleasantly surprised that we didn't get all 100. But now when May rolls around, I'm like, okay, I get 100 days of 100 degrees. That means I get 100 days at Barton Springs. I'm going to go to Barton Springs as often as I can in the morning. I'm not too worried about hardcore qualities and I'm not too worried about like long runs. I'm just worried about the daily practice of moving my body, running, Um, I'm maintaining some level of aerobic base. I put in strides and pickups and a few workouts when I feel like it, but I'm not training for any particular race, uh, right now. And so that just feels like a really good way to be alive. And when September rolls in and my long runs are in the 10 to 12 mile range, then October rolls in and my long runs are in the 14 to 18 mile range. I'm back in a position where. I'm not only running consistently, I'm waking up very early, but I will have built out that summer base. So um, what looks like chaos on the outside, it actually all is coming from a really good plan. I had to rip the band aid, get used to the pain of long runs, survive that marathon. And now I've got really good fundamentals in place. Um, So I'm just encouraged. I'm really happy.
0: Well, and doing it from the Barton Springs lot where you can pop into the Springs, jump into the cool 65 or so degrees during the summer, after a scorching run in the heat and humidity of Austin, Texas, there's no better starting point and finish point in the city during the summer. That's for sure.
1: Totally. And it's so, um, it's so positive and refreshing and good that it's like, there have been a few days where if I just lock myself away in a room and I work, um, I almost get this sad feeling where I'm like, man, the most exciting positive piece of my day was already done by like 6:40 (laughs) a.m., and now I just have to work the rest of the day. That's how much I love it, though. Like it's, I'm trying to communicate that it's it's funny, uh, and the sad part's just kind of the humor around it. But it's like, yeah, it's like the best part happens right between like 5:40 and 6:30, and then done.
0: Well, starting your day on a high note, and you. Influenced me enough to start some Friday morning runs there in July. And it's a game changer when you're slogging through those miles in the heat and humidity, and then you get to jump in there, cool off immediately. Then you feel amazing. So there's something to it. I think you're on to something there. And if anybody comes to visit Austin in the summer, then that is certainly the way to do it. Go to Barton Springs, do your run from there, plenty of options to run from there, all distances, and then hop in the springs afterwards. It's free until 8am, I think. And then you have to pay.
1: Yep. And, and one last thing I'll put on that is like, I'm glad you brought it up. Like, um, there's actually some science to what I'm talking about, uh, 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 this approach as well. Like you brought up that it's like refreshing. You could do it in the morning. So, um, I'm not going to try to quote Huberman because I wasn't prepared for this to be part of the discussion, but like you can listen to Huberman's podcast, neuroscientist from Stanford. Um, He can talk about this. I'll try to find which episode it's on, but um, by doing something that's hard, like running in a Texas summer, um, having that little uh, uh, Pavlovian dopamine hit, I'm training myself like a dog. Like I have this really positive, encouraging surge of dopamine that comes right after my my run every single morning by going to that Barton, Barton Springs parking lot. So while on one hand, I was joking about like, oh, it's kind of sad. The best thing that's going to happen all day happened this morning between 540 and 630. I'm, I'm literally retraining my brain to think, oh, no, if I don't go to bed and I don't wake up and get out and get that run in, um, then I'm going to miss out on that splurge in Bart, Barton Springs. I don't necessarily consciously think through all those details every time I do it. But I'm now, I've now built in a pattern into my whole framework that's going to make me unstoppable again. And I had to do all that because I did, I did lose a little bit of uh, discipline. I think from the, the, the pandemic in 2020, that was its own thing. But oh, no, it was my foot surgery. It was like that next summer. Like I had plenty of opportunities to get back on the marathon and heal from it. Had a great PT. But somewhere along the way, I just wasn't holding myself accountable. So I had to go back to the fundamentals. Um, so. Anyway, long way of saying there, there's some actual science to what I'm doing too. I can't explain this science. I took the application and started working it on it myself. Had I known this was going to come up, I would have written down notes and explained the science.
0: But <laughs> You're talking about Huberman Lab. The his yep. podcast is what it's called. So yeah, a lot, a lot there on longevity and basically trying to live your best, most, most healthy life. That's broad-based health perspective versus narrow running focus like we talk about here. But a couple of notes to add since we're down this path. One, that was your 26th marathon, right? I believe.
1: Yeah, it was number 26.
0: So a lot of symmetry with that number. Pretty cool. Congrats on number 26. It's more Thank than I've you. done. <laughs> and two, I think it underscores this point that the summer is is tough, really, no matter where you are. I think most of the country, I think I saw some stat couple weeks ago that 60% of the U S population was under some sort of heat advisory. So climate change, all that it's hot everywhere and the summer can be a slog no matter where you are, but finding ways to make it positive is a way to reinforce those behaviors, even when it's hard. So Something to think about there. One of the themes for me during the summer, as I've been laying a base foundation for a, a fall push as well is just this idea of surviving and advancing, survive in advance, get through a run, survive in advance. Don't worry about the style points. Don't worry about making it look pretty. Don't worry about hitting specific paces necessarily because it's not possible in these conditions, but you can get in good work. And then just advance in the next day. And if you keep doing that day by day, you'll hit the fall with a massive foundation to build on. So, Amen. So there we go. That is way more than I anticipated we would get from our intro. I think the other thing to note here is that it's possible we may be doing more podcasts together on this show, which could be exciting.
1: I think it's more than possible. You're the only thing that can prevent that, Chris. You know, uh, you give me so, a captive audience and a microphone. I'm not.
0: <laughs> so if the audience wants more from James and I, then then shoot me an email. Let me know. Vote with your, with your emails to me at chris at roguerunning.com. All right, let's jump in. We have to give a shout out to our group, The Rogue Renegades, our virtual podcast-based group that is an amazing, amazing community. I know I've talked about it on here. People have jumped in from our listener base, but got to give them a shout out. They're also a really thoughtful and educated training community. So when you join them, if that ever becomes a part of your future, if you're just a listener at this point and you're walking into a group of highly educated athletes that are really committed to getting their goals and they always have really good questions for us. Some of these are sort of right down the middle of the fairway questions in terms of questions everybody might have. We're going to be talking about training paces. We're going to be talking about race planning. We're going to be talking about managing your schedule with vacation and travel. We're going to be talking about how you might think about training paces versus racing paces and more. So a lot of these questions are really applicable to everybody and we've tried to pull those out. But also, you know, there'll be some nuanced questions as well. So we'll get to that and we'll see how many we get through. But I want to thank the renegades for these questions. And hopefully they can help the renegades, but also help everybody. So let's jump in. This is going to be a pretty bread and butter question. I mean, we could probably make a whole episode about this, James. And it's something that I commonly get questions about. But we'll jump in with this first question here, which is how do you decide on a range of paces? How do you decide on a range of paces? And we're talking about training paces here. Something that you obviously have to decide as you start to apply the workouts from whatever training program you might be using. How fast should you be doing your runs? Now, interestingly, this question includes the words range of paces, which is a concept that we talk about with the Renegades is that for training pace purposes, you should be using a range. So before we jump into answering that question, I want to pose a smaller question to you, James, which is this idea that how would you relate training paces and race? Paces or training paces and goal race paces. Let's start with that foundation.
1: Um, well, I've gotten so used to quoting you, and that's the whole <laughs> train where you are in order to get to where you want to go. But actually, beyond quoting you, that's the specific level, right? Um, you know me, I'm an abstract thinker. And so, you know, I read a lot of psychology. And at the end of the day, where you're coaching um, salespeople, Uh, you're coaching someone in a relationship or you're coaching a runner. Um, On the abstract, it's, hey, you're at point A and you want to get to point B and you need a system, a structure, and some guide rails to get you from A to B optimally, right? And so if I try to answer that small micro question, it's like, one, recognize where you are and get in motion first. And so it's probably going to be slower than what you think. And then your goal paces have a little bit to do with how's your uh, like as in actual race day paces. Those those will be um, determined by like okay where where have you been in the past? Like if you're racing a marathon, what are your five k times? Your your um, PRs in the half, your PRs in the ten k, etc. How's the training gone? Have you hit eighty percent of what was scheduled? Like that's a different set of uh, Criteria to run through in order to determine how fast or slow you should race at. It's a different calculation that you should probably do about seventy-five percent of the way or eighty-five percent of the way through your season. Um, rather than what are my training paces? It's like that's going to be determined on uh, a getting into motion, and then B. We we like to use a two-mile time trial, but you you got to do some kind of time trial, some kind of. Uh, um, workout that gives you an idea of what your top end range is so that your coach can start breaking it up and giving you that quote range did that answer it's almost yeah, harder I mean, to answer that ultimately, question. Yeah.
0: yeah ultimately your your point there about the disconnect between race and training paces is i think an important lee off point you know everybody wants to think that they're running a prescribed 5k pace in a workout that that would be the 5k pace they could do on race day. And maybe that's true, but sometimes it's not. It could be faster or slower potentially than what you might race at. And so we need to first, to get the concept here correct, is is understand that training paces and race paces may or may not be directly correlated. They're two separate conversations. They're related, certainly, and there's potential overlap, but they're separate conversations because what we're trying to figure out with training paces, and we'll talk in a minute about why that's a range, is you're trying to figure out how to put you into the right zones to stimulate your aerobic system in the ways that it needs to be stimulated in order to get certain outcomes. And typically, the the vernacular that we use and the vernacular that most of running, coaching, and training programs use is this idea of using race-based paces to calibrate your training paces. So I'm going to tell you to run 5K pace for a workout or 10K pace for a workout or about half marathon pace for a workout. Or sometimes you're going to do marathon pace repeats if you're training for a marathon, and that's how we communicate those are the words that we use, but what we're really meaning in using those words is trying to correlate those paces to aerobic development zones that are going to help you prepare your physiology and totality for the race that you're trying to to train for so it's essentially a way to put you in the right effort based zones in order to get the training outcomes you're looking for and so that's point one. You have to understand what we're trying to accomplish when we're using that, those terms and those terminologies, or when, you know, you get an output from the Macmillan calculator that a lot of people use, you have to know, well, what, how do I use that? Well, how is it productive to put into practice for training? So that's sort of step one is this idea that we're separating those two concepts, training and racing pace. And to the idea that the pace really is just a representation of an effort-based zone to get Mm -hmm. a physiological benefit in training. Which then introduces this concept of range. Why use a range for your paces? One of the things that I think some people like to do is say, well, my 5K pace is 7.30 per mile. Okay, maybe... That's what you could do for a 5K or theoretically you should be training at for a 5K training pace. But it's not that specific. If we're talking about it in the context of training paces, to use it as a pinpoint pace is too precise for what we're trying to accomplish. Right? Again, we're talking about effort zones, which implies that there's a range of paces that would be in a similar effort zone if you're trying to work. VO2 max for at 5k pace, for example. So we're not trying to give you pinpoint paces. We're actually wanting you to think about it as a range, which not only means that you have a range of paces for which you can achieve the right benefit, but also gives you much more flexibility in terms of being able to claim success on a workout than I think most people would naturally give themselves. So when we talk about ranges with our athletes, it's with that in mind that we want you to actually train within a range, perhaps even as much of a 20 second per mile range or a given pace zone, 5k pace being an example, where you might train between 730 and 750 or 720 and 740. And if you can achieve the workout at 5k pace anywhere within that range, you can claim success. Some days you're going to feel great and you're going to be on the faster end. Some days you're like you today, some days you're not going to feel great and you're going to be on the slower end, but still be able to claim success. And so as long as we're putting you in the right range, then that's a more effective way to do it because it acknowledges that if you're going to get into an effort bait zone, it's not about a specific single point pace. So that's the second point to know is that it's really about ranges. Yep. And I would add that in the summer months, those ranges might even be more generous than they would be in normal temperatures because the heat, humidity, whatever you may face in your climate is going to push those paces even slower. And so there might be days where you could run your cool weather pace range and be okay, even if it's hot, but most likely not. And so you're going to maybe need to give yourself even more flexibility.
1: Totally. I would say that I would go as far as that you have to, like the, the range must be greater, not even that it can be. And when it comes from a coaching perspective, it gets, we had an athlete in the virtual group ask about this, like, can I just use my same multiplier on race day? Um, uh, for like temperature. Oh, do I just change the pace by X percent, uh, based on temps? And I'm like, no, because on race day, it is one single effort where you're going to go to the well. And we don't care if you have energy to do your workout next week, because we want you to squeeze the sponge, lay it all out on race day. So we can get a little bit more tight, a little bit more controlled and a little bit more prescriptive on race day efforts. Because again, we're, we're emptying the bucket. It's race day. It's done after that. But training, we're stringing together an entire body of work. And so just you and I with two different body types, we couldn't say slow down by 15% on when it's, uh, let's say, uh, 85 degrees with 80% humidity. Because I, uh, you know, just my build is so much different than yours. So we're already starting in a different point. And even though our paces are different, again, our builds are different. And we might respond to heat differently. We might respond to humidity differently. And these are all like moving variables where it gets, it gets to a point where it's like, oh man, if we try to tighten that window too much and get too precise, it just all falls apart. So in the summer, we've got to encourage people to train by effort and widen up that range and give yourself a little bit of grace because you're like, I'm moving the whole week forward. My monthly mileage is moving forward. My aerobic engine is growing. I'm touching on these different energy zones. I'm making progress on the cellular level that I cannot see. Who cares if I ran my 800 at 740 pace when coach wrote it for 730 pace last season when it was cold? Who cares about the 10 second difference?
0: Yep. So, Point one, you got to separate training paces and race paces. Point two, you want to think about it in ranges. Point three, you already said, but want to reiterate and kind of relates back to point one, which is this idea that you're going to choose your paces for workouts or for the, or, or to use as an anchor for easy run paces. That should be based on where your fitness currently lands. You don't want to reach. And so. You said it, I like to say it a lot, train where you are, not where you want to go, because if you train where you are, you'll get where you want to go. That's a really hard concept to embrace, but it's absolutely true. I talk about it in full in episode 246, if you want to go back to that one, where I talk about more truths about training paces, but you have to really settle into where you are versus where you think you want to be. because. That's how you'll get to where you want to be. And it's really hard for people to embrace that idea, but it's absolutely true. And by the way, if you ask McMillan about his calculator, that's the way he sets up his paces and his calculator as well is based on getting people to train where they are so they can get the goals that they're putting into the calculator. So that's point three and if you embrace all of those ideas then the question becomes well how do i determine what my pace range should be so i'll throw that one to you you already alluded to this idea of a time trial
1: yeah i was going to say if i put it into so we're asking the very specific question how do i determine what my paces are uh, moving up the abstraction ladder a little bit it's like where am i like we're just trying to answer the question of where am i we need some kind of fitness test right so let me also address something that I see pop up a lot. I don't care what you ran in high school like, <laughs> or college. So many people come to the table and they remember, like, let's say, let's say we've got a 40 year old who's uh, pretty fit high school. Every time they went out the door, they ran about a 730 mile and they would do that for about three miles. I don't care if that's what you ran in high school. Is it an interesting data point? If I were to do a one-on-one and try to determine how fast you might get or how, my, how quickly you might adapt to our training programs. Yeah, that's helpful, but it's not where you are right now. Like we really need to figure out right now, what, how fit are you aerobically um, and specifically within running. And we like to use this two mile time trial. And that's because we have so much data associated with it. We have so many resources that we can start, we can move out of this Wild and chaotic world that says like, "I don't know, just like go out there and try harder, and we can start to narrow in and say, Okay, well, we know that if someone can run um two miles at this pace, we've got a decent level of certainty that they run a marathon about this pace, they run a half marathon about this pace, they run a ten k and that's just because we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of data uh runners who have helped us build data sets who have created uh, spreadsheets that have put them into like coaching formats that we all have as like resources now. And so that helps us determine, um, uh, what your current fitness may be close to. Um, cause again, that's what, uh, another reason why we separated is like, we just need a starting point. Um, cause once we determine like, all right, we know you can do this, this fast at one mile or two mile or a 5k, any of those are good, at, good enough. I really liked I longer, the better, honestly, generally speaking, when I'm talking to half marathoners or marathoners, but if someone's like goal is like, Hey, I want to finish a 10 K and maybe race a 5 K. I want to make space for that runner too. Then a one mile time trial, uh, could be good enough. It's like, Hey, let me just get a a little baseline and find out where you are. Um, but otherwise the folks running, uh, you know, let's say 30 miles a week and up and they're training at half or fulls. I'd rather you do a two mile or a, a 5k, um, a little bit stronger data point. Um, and then that gives us a range, which allows us to start assigning workouts. And I'm going to tease this and let me know if I should go deeper. If, uh, uh, if it's a whole nother set of questions, but then once we have the time trial, and we have those paces, and we get you into motion doing workouts at those paces, like four by a mile at MGP or six by 800 at 10K, then this is what coaching is. There's a dialogue. There's a dance. There's an interaction. It's like, how are you dealing with those paces? Because then we can refine again. Like if every time you do a workout that we've assigned you that should, you should be pretty good if that's truly your 10K pace, but you feel like you're dying every time, well, we overshot the mark, but at least we're in the right window. And if you feel like, oh my gosh, these are the most underwhelming workouts ever. I think I signed up for the wrong group. I'm not even getting a stimulus. It's like, okay, well, maybe your two-mile time trial didn't go very well. I might bump you up a couple pace rows because you're actually not, not really getting much of a challenge out of this workout anyway. So there is a little bit of like, there's always some percentage of subjectivity where coach and athlete have to interact and have to find a way by which to get more dialed in. Um, But the two-mile time trial helps us get those pace ranges. The workouts will include those pace ranges. How you're dealing with those workouts will help us determine and refine somewhat of a little bit tighter window on that range of paces.
0: Yeah, so if you have no data points, time trial is the perfect way. We like two miles or going to do a local 5K to create a data point. But also if you've raced recently, you have a data point. I mean, you could have raced a recent 10K or half marathon and that's going to be relevant. I think one of the things that's critical to underscore in the art of applying the science around paces is this idea that it's not just one data point that matters. For me, it's race results or time trial results is sort of one leg of the stool. Another would be your training. So what do we know from your training about what you should be running. And then the third would be your goals. I do think the goals are a relevant data point. They're not necessarily going to drive the ship as we already alluded to. You have to make sure you're training where you are versus where you want to go. But at the same time, if your goals are where you are, then, and you just don't have a race result to prove it yet, then that's a highly relevant data point to consider in the overall equation. So Those are the three variables we look at. And then you decide, you know, where to start and then you collect more data based on how workouts are feeling at those paces. So to put a finer point on the idea of using a two mile time trial or a 5k as a data point, if you take those outcomes and put it into a calculator like McMillan's calculator, And in particular, I think with McMillan's, he's made it a little bit complicated. I would click on the race times tab at the top versus the training paces. I think his training paces get confusing and they're more related to his specific approach with training paces. But if you click on the race times outcome or tab, it'll give you a list of what you could theoretically do for the 10K, the half, the full marathon, and so forth. And then that becomes a starting point. And then you range around that. If you're if you're confident in those numbers, you could range with that at the at the middle at the midpoint where you might go a little bit faster, a little bit slower. If you're not confident or maybe new to a distance, you might range slower. What I like people to use for the marathon, if they're targeting the marathon, is a 10 minute range around a specific target. So if you might be targeting or your if your outcomes. Would tell you that a four hour marathon is possible. Your range might be 355 to 405, and using the equivalent paces down the chart for that range. For a half marathon, usually a five minute range, where if you were shooting for a 145, you might train between 142.30 and 147.30. Typically, two minutes roughly for a 10K would be a range I would use, and one minute for the 5K. Once you have those ranges, then you start executing workouts and see how they feel. Do you feel good in the middle of the range? You consistently at the faster end of the range, or if you're hitting the range, does it feel terrible and you feel like you're overstretching every time, then maybe you need to change your range. So then you have to collect more data and make adjustments as you go. Ideally with the input and help of a coach, but if you don't have one, then you can use your own intuition. I want to underscore here, and then I'll throw it to you for a final comment on this question. I want to underscore the fact that it is so critical to develop a relationship with your paces in a way that you learn to feel them without looking at your Garmin, that you learn to listen to your body and be able to adjust to what it's telling you, regardless of what your watch says. And that you, from each workout that you do, you take lessons to calibrate over time how you're managing all of that. This is what I've talked about in, in one of my episodes this year about using your intuition, developing your running intuition. That's really what I'm talking about at this point. Because, as an example, as sort of the other end of the example, I've, I've had some athletes recently ask me, Hey, could I just jump on a treadmill? and do the workout there because i know i can nail the paces if i if i can plug it in to the treadmill and in many ways that defeats the purpose yes you might check the physiological box by doing the workout on the treadmill and i'm not necessarily crapping on treadmill workouts a lot of people in the summer have to train on the treadmill or in the winter and that can be okay but it doesn't force you to feel the paces and so it definitely takes away a dimension of le- of learn of learnings, learning's not a word, It takes away a dimension of what you can learn from a workout by doing it that way. And so I like people, if possible, to not do it on a treadmill so that they can feel, they can learn to feel. And that becomes a really important part of the process in being able to then go execute your paces at any point for workouts, but also f- certainly for race day.
1: I have two big responses that um, I'm trying to stay calm and talk in a relaxed manner. Cause I get passionate about this stuff, but um, <laughs> so I don't confuse myself and lose a train of thought. One's going to be on the truth, telling, telling the truth radically, and one's going to be on identity. So uh, one, tell the truth, like be absolutely off the charts. So incredibly honest with yourself because like you said, some people don't have a coach and then there are other people who have a coach, but it's like, they're trying to impress their coach instead of, um, being the, fir- I like this concept of be the first to tell on yourself. Cause the whole idea here is like, we get one little life and then it's gone. And in this lifetime, we're choosing to run and we're trying to get better at our run. And we pay this money to some coach and that coach is trying to help us. And it's like, you know, you use the treadmill example. The reason why I wanted to go honesty was you were like, Hey, sometimes it's because of the heat in the summer, you got to get on a treadmill. Sometimes it's because it's the winter and you got to get on the treadmill to actually get the workout done. Great. If you know in your core, in your stomach, that is your reason for going toward the treadmill and executing the workout, you're being very honest with yourself. And in that scenario, the, the, the treadmill is absolutely a great tool and a resource. But if deep down, you're just not wanting to be honest with yourself and you're only doing it so you can nail those paces, despite the fact that you just instructed people to do it differently on this podcast, that's when you're sort of lying to yourself. And that's when you're like hiding behind the protocol and saying like, I'm going to do this because I want to know." Another- I don't know. Just be honest with yourself. <laughs> what is your motive for getting on that treadmill? Um, and if it's the heat or the, uh, the, the, the cold in the winter, great. So be radically honest. The next part you said, develop the intuition, learn. Um, I'm also, what I will add to that is, uh, and, and stop attaching your identity to it. Like develop intuition and get rid of the identity part. Um, so many athletes reach out to me, especially the more I've grown in this virtual world. Like we have our virtual groups, but I've got private uh, clients uh, as well. Um, and they'll reach out and, and they just compare to Strava and they they see other people's paces and they'll be like, coach, I'm slow, I'm so slow. And it's like, stop, like, where is this coming from? Um we need you to train at the right paces so that adaptations occur on the cellular level so that you end up getting faster. When you're in that incubator, when you're in the oven baking, I don't need you to look like a fully presented wedding cake. I just need the cake to rise. I, I, I need you to be in the space that you're in growing and getting a little bit better. And, and, and if the paces are just a little bit slower than maybe what you thought they would be, who cares? You're at the spot you're supposed to be at, taking the next step forward in your life. That's a beautiful thing. You're you're using your di- uh, your disposable income. You're using your extra time, which is limited in this world, uh, in order to get better. Like, be honest about the pace that you're at. Train at it. Take the next incremental gain, the next step forward, and don't get your identity all wrapped up in like. Uh, oh no, what if my Strava just isn't as fast as I once thought? Like I literally have athletes that are just, they're going to refuse to run slower than a set pace, even on their long, even if it's like 104 in Texas, they're just like, I'm not going to run slower than a 10 minute pace. I just don't do that. Their identity is so wrapped up into it. They would feel so insulted uh, in their own ego and and conscience. I'm not picking on them. Uh, I'm just saying you got to let go of that. Like if the right, if the medicine is to slow down, then slow down because you'll end up getting better from it. All right. I got preachy.
0: (laughs) Well, and that was going to be my next point, which is that, you know, there are workout paces and we've kind of talked about how to determine those. And then there's easy run and recovery paces. And that is different. And, you know, I've used the rule of thumb before on this podcast. It's a rule of thumb that you want your long run and your medium long run pace to be at least a minute slower than marathon pace, or at least 90 seconds slower than half marathon pace. Your recovery run should be two minutes slower than marathon pace, two and a half minutes slower than half marathon pace or slower. One of the mistakes people make, and I think ego can be tied into it that you're referring to is this idea that somehow your recovery run paces are going to get faster as you get faster, or that's somehow an indicator of fitness. Well, I ran my long run at X pace, even though I was supposed to be running easy and compare that to last week, it was faster. So there's some feedback mechanism that's making me feel good about myself, even though you may have actually made a mistake by going too hard. So I want to make sure that people understand that when you're running easy, it's about easy effort. And recovery, it's about easy recovery effort. And it might not actually get that much faster from that perspective when you could be wildly getting faster in workouts. But I've done two recovery runs this week. And I don't say these paces to try to compare them for anybody else, but at 10-minute miles or slower, Monday and Wednesday, My goal marathon pace is about 605. So I'm running four minutes slower on recovery days. My recovery paces haven't, they've actually gotten slower over time as I've embraced and fully realized the power and magic of slowing down on recovery days and recognizing that if you do that, then you can get more and more out of your workouts. So that's something else I want to underscore is that your easy paces are not something to be used as an indicator for ego or for fitness.
1: And I'm like, I want, I wanted to say like heart rate is a better one, but I know that that can like, I don't want to overstate heart rate because it has its issues too with like the tools and everything. But I finally have a guy who's kind of becoming a a leader in our group. um, And I'm hoping other athletes are watching him because it's like, he's he's getting to where he's ultra chain training so he it was a little bit easier to get him to buy into this and um but now most of his uh recovery runs are just like in that 135 beats per minute cuz even if you tell someone to stay under 150 they try to run 149 right you know it's like uh it's a beautiful thing when the athlete finally tips and they trust and i've gone like 3 4 years sometimes working on a person and i will be that patient but it'll take like three, four years sometimes. And I'm trying to get better and better. My, my goal to grow as a coach is to get to where I can like actually nip it in the bud. New athletes coming into my programs now, I, I, I will actually start the conversation. I'm afraid you won't trust me about running easy on your recovery days and your long runs. So I'm afraid to even write the program. Do you trust that concept? And if they are like, selling me they're they're like it's like kind of like reverse psychology they're like no no no, i trust it i buy into it i've heard chris talk about it on his podcast like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna go then i'm like okay we can do it but i'm gonna be watching your straw but like now i'm like so proactive on the front end but i've got some athletes now just embracing it and their their heart rate's like 135 to 140 and they don't they don't care that they probably could have gone even a little bit faster i just love seeing that heart rate come down
0: yes heart rate can be a good tool Caveats being, of course, that you have a good measuring tool wrist a space heart rate may or may not be accurate. So if you have a chest band, that's the best way. And then the other caveat is that truly you need to get a VO2 max test in order to figure out your heart rate zone so you know exactly where you stand from that perspective. There are rules of thumb that we can give, but that's the other, the other data point. That you want to be looking at is actually getting tested if you're really using heart rate. I do think you can start to collect that data using risk based heart rate over time to at least get a relative sense for where you should be. You mentioned that made me think of a pretty interesting set of data points I got running last week in the mountains. I went on a a nine mile run in the mountains, starting at about 9,100 feet, climbed up to close to 9,600 feet. And then descended, but I had a really interesting run because my heart rate for the, for the run averaged in the one twenties, which for me is solid, you know, probably low end of zone two, high end of zone one. And because I was at altitude and climbing for some of it and descending for some of it, I had a mile that took me 18 minutes, 45 seconds. My heart rate was 128, where I climbed 279 feet. I had another mile that was 722 with a similar heart rate, but I was going downhill. Anyway, just thought it was interesting to see that dichotomy of pace where the heart rate was actually very similar, just terrain was different. So effort wise, based on heart rate, those two miles were exactly the same between the 720 and the 1845. And I got a nice solid low end zone two, maybe high end zone one workout in, where all of my miles were very different paces depending on the terrain, but consistent heart rate throughout and it just underscores the fact that you can have a wide range of pace for whatever the conditions might be. In My case, it was altitude and terrain, but it might be heat and humidity for others in another environment. And we tend to give ourselves grace in an altitude environment, but we don't when it's hot or, or perhaps when other conditions are, are challenging for whatever reason, like terrain on a race course. And so I just, Wanted to give that example to underscore the fact that if the effort is right, and in my case, since the heart rate was right, it doesn't really matter what the pace is.
1: Yep. I think that drives it home. And athletes sometimes have a, a short memory too. They'll, they'll forget that just, just in December, it was so cold and that's why they could run you know, the equivalent of your 720 example. But then in 140 degrees in August, they're running, maybe not your 18 minute, but you made a point by using the extremes of like, it's like, hey, don't have such a short memory. Remember, it was cold when you were doing that. You've not gone backwards as an athlete. Heat's a variable, just like oxygen deprivation in the mountains is a variable.
0: All right, quickly, we're going to step away from our Q&A to talk about my partnership with John G. Again, thank you so much to John G for supporting the podcast over the last several months. Excited about them as a partner. Also excited about their gear. I was just traveling in the mountains last week and I had a day where I went on a run and realized I had on all John G gear. Plus I was using one of their accessories, the multi-pass sling bag. Had on the repeat Reno tech tee, as well as the trail half tights to finish out my outfit and it was absolute perfection for running in the mountains, but could be used for running anywhere. Really comfortable, fits well, and the multi-pass sling bag is amazing for carrying accessories that won't bounce while you're running. So I had my phone, and I had my keys, and I had other things in there because I was running point to point to meet my family for lunch, and it ended up being the perfect way to carry my stuff on the go. So go check out Johnji; They are an amazing running apparel company. Their company is also set up around helping great causes particularly supporting water projects all around the world two percent of revenue goes to support water projects around the world plus they do amazing work bringing awareness to artists and cultures all over the world through the designs on their apparel so go check it out i've got an offer code for you use the code Rogue15, rogue 15 that's r-o-g-u-e one five when checking out for 15 percent off at John G.com or runjonji.com again that's rogue15 15, rogue15 15 for 15% off go check it out all right let's get back to my Q&A with James so let's get to the next one the next question is what are the key components of a good race plan or race report so for me I'll jump in here and kind of tee it up for you and other people may have more detail to provide, but I think the three key components of a, of a good race plan include pace strategy, one, nutrition and hydration strategy, two, and mental strategy, three. Those are the absolute must-have components for a good race plan. Pace strategy, nutrition, hydration strategy, and mental strategy, You might add more elements to that. Some people like to throw in logistical elements around planning the day of and day before thinking about meals before and after and so forth. But when it comes to the actual race itself, those are the three components that I always talk about with every athlete when I'm going through race planning. What would you say?
1: I agree. Um, it may just be different language, but it's, it's all in the spirit of being able to quote control the controllables. So, um, well, I'm thinking of a marathon. I should probably broaden it, but you nailed it. I think for all races, when I think of a marathon, I think of basically and a half. I think that you should control about 80% of your race. Um, if and, that, and that's with the elements that you mentioned, like the, the mindset's right, the nutrition's right, um, the pacing strategy's right. Like, and I basically feel like races should be a space in life where you're able to put yourself in a scenario to find out uh, what's on the other side, so to speak. So if like you, you're in control for 20 to 22 of your miles in a marathon, then yeah, I want the other four to be a mystery where you can wrestle with the edges of life and find out how did the wrestling go, which leads into components of a good report. Like It's all about what did you expect? What did you want out of it? Uh, what was your effort like? Um, how hard did you fight on that day? Those to me are... Um, what make up a good report, but then also with the plan, it's like control as much as you can, and then find out and like whittle it down to a scenario where it's like you got like just this like four mile window or this you know and a half, like maybe a two three mile window where you just are simply beyond your limits and finding out what's about to happen.
0: Fair enough. So now I want to drill in a little bit on those sub parts. So when we're talking about pay strategy or how to approach the race from a pacing standpoint. You know, that's your mile by mile plan, which for me, you know, I would typically lay out for a marathon or a half marathon, start a little conservatively relative to what you think is possible, and then work down to your target pace, hold that to a certain point, usually about mile 10 or 11 of the half or mile 21 or 22 of the marathon. And then if you have something left, pick it up from there and try to progress to the finish. That's the blueprint. But I think part of the generic blueprint, I should say, but part of developing a good pace strategy when you're race planning is also really thinking about the weather and also the terrain that you're going to face on race day so that you can include those elements in the plan. I, think I recently had an athlete do some homework, which was great to lay out their own race plan Say, Hey, this is what I was thinking for this race, but it ended up being what I would consider a textbook or sort of more generic plan that would be tailored to a flat course. And then I simply asked the question, Hey, well, can you send me the elevation chart to match? And it ended up being a course with a lot of elevation change. So we had to kind of go back to the drawing board and really consider those elements as well, because obviously you're not going to be able to run a quote textbook plan mile by mile consistently if you have significant elevation change on the course. And I think oftentimes people don't necessarily account for that piece. So that's something you need to account for. And I actually have a whole podcast episode on it, which is episode 250. For those that want to go back and check that out about building your own race, plan, your own pace strategy, at least. So that would be, you know, something I would underscore there. And then when we get to nutrition, hydration, it's both things. How are you fueling? What is the food you're taking in pre-race during the race, whether you're using gels or chews or some other product like you can, and then hydration, which would include how you're planning on taking in your fluids you're using the water stops or not, how frequently you're hitting them. Are you using the electrolytes or just the water at those stops? And then of course, inclusive of that is, do you have any additional electrolyte supplementation you're going to be doing during the race itself? Those pieces can be confusing, I think, for a lot of people, but if you've practiced it, then it would really be all about Executing what you know will work for your body on race day and just translating that into the time and distance that it's going to take you to cover the course. And then the third piece, the mental side, I think is often neglected. You know, people spend all their time thinking about what their training should look like and then what the tactical elements of the race day should look like, but they don't do their homework on the mental side. And there's at least two components there that I want people to think about but you could add to that. One is what's your purpose for the day? Why are you racing? Remind yourself the point of getting out there and towing the line. And typically that will have you thinking about your goal for the race, but also why you want that goal. And then two, what are your mantras for race day? What are the words, phrases you're going to use to find a rhythm, rhythm mantras, and also to fight, fight mantras that's a component I think people don't spend enough time on, and then I would add to that a third element, which is just what are the other tools you're going to be using mentally to try to get the best out of yourself on that day? So if I had to break down the sub components that's that's what I would say. Anything to add there?
1: I would add to the mental pieces like you're big on teaching the why and preaching the why, and I think um the reason why that is so important is that helps you develop your mantras, and your mantras um, don't think of them as like one mantra for the whole day. Just like you, you might take your first go at seventy-five minutes, and then you plan every forty-five minutes to take another or thirty-five to forty-five afterwards. Or you might have pace changes, like the first half might be a little bit slower than the second half because you're going for a negative split race. In the same way, I think that you should have mantras that guide you. Your mantras that are appropriately used appropriately at the right time throughout the race itself. Like beginning the journey, beginning the race, might, you might want to be in a different headspace than when you're fighting demons and struggling through the end and hoping that you don't fall off of pace. So it's like dig into your why, like you said, like no why of that day, but also your big picture why. Why do I run? What am I trying to prove to myself? Um, and then use some of that internal personal knowledge about yourself to treat it almost like this extra boost of motivation to get you through like i like to match pain with pain so when i'm in the marathon i always save that last 10k for one of my most painful deep dark type motives um not necessarily negative it's just like i i like i like to use the 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 last part of a race as a metaphor for adversity we've faced in life. That way I draw out of that human spirit inside of me something big where I'm like, yeah, this hurts. It's hard to keep going, but I've survived X or other people. Maybe you're running for a cause and you're like, some people suffer from X and you're able to tap into another Layer of emotions and motivation that can match pain with pain.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. And it underscores just the potential differences and and why I talk about having different kinds of mantras because you want to be in one headspace when you're in the middle of the race, trying to find that rhythm, stay relaxed, stay positive. But when it's time to fight, and everybody's going to have a different thing that they might connect to, some people might be fighting, you know. Matching pain with pain, for some people it might be trying to it might be more effective for them to stay in a positive mind space to counteract the, the negative space that might be induced by what you're feeling on the course. And and so that just underscores it's gonna look different for a little bit for everybody, but I w- I find most commonly that your rhythm mantras and your fight mantras are gonna be different. As a result, for each individual, and then across individuals, of course, they'll be different. So it needs to be personal and it needs to match what's going to get you to be able to dissociate from the hard things that you're facing and get the most out of yourself when it counts, when all the chips are on the table. Anything else you would add on the race planning discussion, or shall we go to the next?
1: No. I think we
0: go to the next. Okay. I like this next question and I'm going to send it to you to start, which is simply what do you think the best cross training and recovery activities are for runners?
1: Um, uh, this one's almost low hanging fruit for, for me. We can get more creative, but um, first from a strength building perspective, it's hip and glute and hip and glute. And if you're not working your hips and glutes, you should be working your glutes and hips. Um, so as much as you can do and if if within working hips and glutes if you can uh, move into single leg exercises great so low hanging fruit bare minimum three times a week 20 minutes it can be body weight and and if you have this baseline established then great you can add weights you can get more creative you can move through three different planes of motion but at the end of the day you need three times 20 minutes where you're activating glutes so just think glute bridges down on the ground heels on the floor raising your pelvis into the air and squeezing your butt as tight as you can lunges are great um board and back side to side um that is probably number one i would go to because it's going to help keep so many injuries at bay it's going to activate the glute it helps the hamstring like you're just preventing so much by incorporating that then there's the the flip side when when i look at it through the lens of restorative um So if it's the day after a quality, it's the day after a long run, that's not a running day. And we know that we just want blood flow. I love the bike or I love that anything that has the legs moving, but you're not hammering. Because if your legs are moving, then you're increasing blood flow to the muscles that you just put through a lot of damage the day before. And it's that blood flow, that oxygen uh, the nutrients in that blood that are helping heal that all the muscles that you damaged or tore up prior, so a bicycle, but again don 't hammer because I hate like I have so many people whose calves become an issue if they 're hammering the bike, but if they 're gliding on the bike, awesome. I like rowing machines too, honestly you 're getting a little more upper body in the rowing machine, but uh, you're mainly still u- utilizing your legs, but don 't hammer it just like softly doing it so. I'm going to vote rowing machine and bikes for the restorative to increase blood flow. Um, and I'm going to, um, say the gluten hip work as strength, uh, to support or prevent injury.
0: Those are good bread and butter pieces. And I would just add from a restorative recovery element, sleep and fueling to the equation. Sleep is your number one recovery tool you're not getting enough of that, if you're not optimizing sleep, then that's something to work on to prioritize both quantity and quality. Fueling, especially post-workout and long run, you've got that 90-minute window after each of those where your body is not only better able to restore glycogen into your working muscles for your next hard thing, but also when it's Actively looking for the building blocks to recovery, which means all the macronutrients, carbs, fats, proteins, in order to rebuild your working muscles so that it can then go do the next hard thing as well. So make sure in that 90 minute window you're getting a well balanced, filling meal post long run, post workout, so that your body has the recovery tools it needs to go do its job so that you can feel better on your next long or hard thing. Sleep well, get that easy movement in, could be easy movement like you're talking about, bike, swim, row, elliptical, could be the easy recovery run, which of course we love. Those are the fundamental elements of recovery. If we go beyond, then I think it becomes individual and specific to what you might need or what you might think works best for you. And here we can debate the perhaps merits of some of these smaller elements, modalities, but I do think there might be a placebo effect related to a lot of them. But if you think it works for you, probably does. The number one thing on that list for me is the foam roller. Jumping on a foam roller, which I think also falls into this movement equals blood flow equals healing category but jumping on a foam roller for me, working my low back, glutes, and calves, is an absolutely critical element to recovery. I will also periodically use one of those uh, one of those rolling devices. I have an Add-a-Day roller at home that I use on my quads when they get particularly tight. That I find helpful. That's the number one thing I spend time on outside of those other three elements that I mentioned, sleep, fueling, and easy movement. But for a lot of people, that might look a little bit different depending on what you think works best for you and what you have time for. And then it's a matter of you prioritizing those pieces. If you're not doing the fundamentals well, we shouldn't even be talking about those extras.
1: And, you know, I don't know why I didn't mention this earlier, but also walking. I easy mean, I, it's, movement, like yeah. the, easy it's like so forgettable, but it's like, why didn't I even just lead with that? Like, like never forget the, the beauty of walking because it incorporates the leg piece we were talking about. It's the easy movement that you're talking about. The heart rate's low. Um, but also, I'll never uh, – I got to give credit to Boyd Vardy, who's um, a South African dude who – kind of a life guru who likes to teach about themes. He learns about lion tracking and life in the bush that that apply to daily life. He he talks about this concept of slowing down to the pace of life. It's also why some might encourage if you're journaling to write with a pen instead of typing. If you're not journaling at all, typing your journaling is way better than not journaling. But if you can slow down to the pace of life and write at the rate at which you can move your hand that slows you down, you might experience different epiphanies with the walking, sometimes if you need to use that as just a cross train, just go and walk. You get the blood flow, you get the easy movement, you're checking all these boxes that you listed scientifically, but walking also does so much mentally where it slows you down to the pace of life. And you might see things you otherwise wouldn't see or feel things, like you can metabolize emotions while you're also metabolizing um, um, actual food, while you're also restoring your legs. I wanted to make a big plug for walking.
0: Yeah. Motion is lotion. Movement equals blood flow equals healing. And that is a good way to do it. I would also give a plug for my episode 110 on the science of recovery with Christy Ashwanden. She wrote a book called Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Pretty fascinating book on this topic. The summary of it is that Most of these peripheral modalities that we think about when we think about recovery don't have a lot of good science behind them, but the fundamentals of sleep fueling and movement absolutely do. So if you want to go deeper on it, that would be a book to grab. I also want to underscore, underscore the point you made about not going too intense on some of your cross-training. I We'll have people sometimes tell me, yeah, I'm spinning. I'm spinning for cross training. Is that cool? Like, well, it is if you're not doing one of these crazy intense dance on your bike spin classes, (laughs) because that is not cross training for running. It is also not recovery oriented. That is a workout and it has a very specific purpose that doesn't necessarily fit Into a rigorous running program. So, if where you're doing running workouts, so I would be very, very careful of that. Nothing wrong with those classes if you're looking for general fitness, maybe even weight loss, but if you're trying to build running fitness, you should most of the time not be including workouts like that in the equation unless it's specifically included and calibrated with your running workouts with a coach because most of the time it's simply too much intensity. So got to hammer that point home. Or people will tell me they do Orange Theory in addition. Also not (laughs) cross-training that I would want anybody doing without proper guidance in my running programs, because again, there's a lot of aerobic intensity involved with those Orange Theory workouts. Some good strength as well, But often mixed with aerobic intensity, that becomes too much. I've had people get injured because they were doing Orange Theory workouts right after my the next day after doing a hard speed workout with me. And that was simply too much. So that's that's a cautionary tale on what people consider cross training. Okay. I think we'll have time for maybe one or two more questions. I've got to run here in five minutes or so, James. We're over an hour, I think already, or at least close to it. So here's the next one. If you have an injury that is not season ending, what is the advised approach from our coaches to that? I.e. obviously individual situations different, but what's your advice on how to maintain fitness during injury and how to rebuild after assuming Dr. off? A great question, one that I'm passionate about primarily because if you're running hard, if you're pushing your body, if you're chasing big goals, doing a rigorous program to go get those goals, then it's pretty much guaranteed, I would say 95 to 100% certainty that you're going to face some sort of injury. Put that in air quotes because Injury is, is, there's a huge spectrum of what you could consider an injury, but when you start to have little niggles that are outside of the ordinary of normal soreness, that's a precursor to injury. And there is no such thing as a marathon cycle, a half marathon cycle done rigorously where you don't face something like that in some form. It's just the reality of pushing your body hard, even if you're balancing recovery in the right way. The trick is, identifying those things early and being proactive about addressing them before they become a full blown injury. And so that for me is point one is stay ahead of the game is the minute you have something that feels like it's out of the ordinary from normal soreness, talk to your coach about it, see a provider, do things proactively that you know might help because it's absolutely critical that you just stay ahead of it. And if you do that, most of the time you can keep running through that. You might have to modify some things, shorten some things, decrease intensity for a little bit, but most of the time you can maintain some sort of running program while still working through a little nickel that pops up. And it's critical that you do that if you want to get your goals, but you have to catch it early enough. That's, point one here. Point two, I would give is that once you identify there's an issue, no matter how small, whatever you do is going to require an active process. There's nothing more maddening than somebody disappearing for a week or two weeks without telling me that they were dealing with something. And then suddenly they finally reach out after a couple of weeks and they say, Hey, I took two weeks off because I was feeling X, thought it would help, but started running again and it's still there. What do I do? There's nothing more maddening than that as a coach. <laughs> because most running injuries that are soft tissue related, that are not stress fractures or other acute tears, require movement and action to work through them. Oftentimes that includes some sort of running, sometimes it doesn't. But either way, it will include some sort of rehab or work to get through it, whether that be strength, whether that be mobility work, self-massage, proper massage, foam rolling, whatever it may be to loosen the tightness that might be causing your issue. There is some active work you need to be doing and just doing nothing. Most of the time, if you're dealing with a soft tissue injury, will actually in some ways make it worse because your muscles are going to tighten up around that injury. It's not going to heal. And then it'll be right back where it is, maybe worse when you come back. So you have to make sure it's an active process. And I'd be consulting with your coach. I'd be consulting with a provider. Over time, if you learn your body, you might know the triggers that you can use to help work through common things that pop up for you. I have several in my world. That I know to go to when I start having hip pain. I know, what, I know what to do to work through that. So it's an active process. And usually it involves seeing a provider, but you have to make sure you're seeing a provider that knows what they're talking about. That absolutely knows runners. Because if you just go see a generic provider, whether that be an MD, whether that be a PT, or whether that be a podiatrist, Or a chiropractor. If you just go see a generic provider in those categories that doesn't specifically deal with running-related injuries, you will likely be disappointed. That's not to say there aren't great providers in all of those categories, but for us, for for those dealing with running-related soft tissue injuries, you simply have to get someone who knows runners. Otherwise, you're going to end up likely disappointed. So find a provider that knows runners that can help you navigate the injury. And then lastly, when you're coming back, it just depends on how long you've had a gap. If it's only been a few days, typically you can jump right back in. If it's been a week, then my rule of thumb there is you want to come back at about 75% and then build to 100% in week two. If it's been two weeks, start at 50%, then 75% for a week, and then full throttle for a week, assuming your body's responding to those builds. And if it's been three weeks or more, you may need to go back to the drawing board, depending on your experience, your background, and what you've been facing. So those are my thoughts on that question. Sorry to ice you out there, Jane, but what would you add? No, I
1: like it. It's um, something you're passionate about and you gave good tips. And that's the point is that they learn. Um, I think the only maybe things to potentially squeeze in is like you had mentioned earlier in the, uh, this episode that developing that intuition and learning yourself from like a pacing perspective. I would say here too, like guys, be really good at tracking yourself. Be both subject and scientist. Like write these things down, write where it hurts, how it hurts take a stab at one to 10, it's going to be subjective, but on a one to 10 scale, how much does it hurt? Um, Is it moving around the body? Is it on one side of the body? Is it bilateral Um, or is it like um, unilateral? Um, Is it focal or is it global? Like, do I feel a radiating pain in my quads or can I point with my finger exactly in the area on my quad where it is? Like the more focal and specific, that's not so bueno, you know? Uh, but the more sort of, uh, general dullness on both sides of the body, um, in my quads, I might as a coach be like, yeah, I'm still going to make you do that extra rep. Um, so there's a part where you just have to be subject and scientist both, uh, as you're learning from your coach and you're learning from your doctor, um, or your PT who's released you to come back. Cause she did say, assuming doctor sign off, um, so, track that stuff and be able to articulate it to the best that you can. You'll get better and better and better, and you'll start to know your body. Uh, the one to 10 scale, global versus focal, um, unilateral versus bilateral, uh, I think that's all I have.
0: Yeah, and on the one to 10 scale, the general rule of thumb that I have there that my favorite PT in Austin and Mondo Sports Therapy instructs me as well as a coach if the pain is a three or less on a one to 10 scale, and doesn't get worse as you go, then typically you can keep running. If it's worse than a three, four, five, six, et cetera, or gets worse as you go, then that's a sign that you shouldn't be running and should be considering what else you need to be doing to support that injury, as well as potentially cross-training instead to supplement that aerobic activity. If you can do another aerobic activity that might be at a lower pain level or pain-free, then you could exchange that instead of running. But most of the time, again, because we said movement equals blood flow equals healing, that's a part of the injury recovery process as well. You need to be moving in order to work through whatever you're dealing with. And just stopping is not typically going to be the answer unless you have a fracture or potentially an acute tear in a joint or something like that, that would require that type of break. Okay. So we'll stop there. I think we actually need to wrap this episode here. So let's do that. And then we can just do another one to keep rolling through some of these questions. This has been, this has been fun, James, to have you on.
1: I agree. I love it. And you solicited a little bit of user feedback at the beginning. Um, uh, And I would say, let's go deeper into that. Uh, Guys, let us know like certain things you want to hear if it's more Q and A's like this or, athlete interviews or i'd love to bring more of our coaches on and interview them but i don't want it to just be our ideas like whatever the audience um is going to benefit the most from we'd love to hear some of that
0: yeah and if you have questions then send them my way to chris at rogerunning.com and maybe you'll find it on a future episode all right, so let's wrap it here. This has been episode 324 with James. Appreciate you joining me, James. Excited to hopefully have you back for more. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Till next time, talk to you soon.